Good morning, all. I uh, was getting ready to preach this sermon and happened to be reading through my C.S. Lewis, as I frequently do, and I stumbled across a little thing he wrote uh, about asking a little boy, a little nine-year-old boy, what, he, what kind of person he thought God was. And the child said, well, as near as he could figure, God is the sort of person who goes around through the world to see if anybody's having any fun and make them stop. <laughs> it's kind of a nine-year-old boy thing that God is sort of a spoil sport. But wait, it gets worse. Imagine, if you will, that Genghis Khan has some doubts about his best friend, who's his top general, and kind of wondering whether, is this general really 100% loyal to me? Is he really going to back me up? So he decides to test his general. He says, go home right now, kill your wife and family. And the general does it. Because he is 100% loyal to Genghis Khan. Now I think we could all agree that both Genghis Khan and the general are evil people. Are we in agreement on that? That's a pretty shabby thing to ask somebody to do. And it's an even worse thing to actually do it. And Genghis Khan isn't worth being loyal to, frankly. So, I told you that to tell you this. (laughs) Some people think that God is evil. Now, first of all, you think, well, they're just making a mistake. They're confusing God with some Christians who are doing evil things. Or they just don't believe in God. But there are some people who say, no, that's not it. No, I'm looking right at God. I'm making eye contact with God, and I say he's evil. And once in a while, you come across something in the Bible where you think, you know, they've kind of got a point. Like when God tells Abraham to kill his son Isaac, because God wants to know, does Abraham love me more than he loves his son? Is he 100% loyal to me? This is a story that we all grew up with, but, you know, we kind of just sort of want to hop over it. We tend to think, yeah, well, okay, Abraham had a whole bunch of faith. Turn the page. But let's look at the scripture. Let's really take a good look at it. We got to get it up there, Dennis. I didn't have it. There we go. (laughs) Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering... He set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw that place in the distance. He said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there. We will worship and we'll come back to you. 
Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, he said. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And though your offspring and all the nations on earth, through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. That's the story. Now, even though we grew up in the church and we've heard this story up on the flannel graphs and since we were little tots, and even though we know that Abraham never actually does stick the knife in Isaac, that God stops him in time, even so, God kind of comes out of this story not smelling like a rose. And frankly, Abraham comes out of it, if you were to tell this story to a non-believing friend, Abraham comes out of this looking like either a psycho or an idiot. It's not a pretty story if you don't already know God. But a core belief of our faith, the ground on which we have to stand if we're going to believe anything, is that God is good. God is good. God is good. Everything else depends on that. So we have to look at what is our good God and the patriarch who's the father of faith. What are they up to? What is this story actually about? Well, let's look at Abraham for a minute. He didn't just have this faith like he had fingernails. It had to grow. God was on a long faith journey. Starts out, he's living in the land of Ur where he grew up and knew everything and everybody and had a life. And God told him, Abraham, 
go to the place I'm going to show you and I'll make you prosperous and I'll give you that land. And Abraham went. There was a reward involved, but there was still a lot of trust and a lot of risk. So he took his family and all his belongings and he went to the land and sure enough, it was good and he did prosper. And his faith grew. God told me the truth. God knew what he was talking about. Sometime later, as Eric shared with us last week, his nephew Lot gets kidnapped by four kings and their armies, four kings with armies. And God makes Abraham able to go and get Lot back and save him with 318 men. They're outnumbered, you know, like 100 to 1 or whatever it is, four armies against 318 men. And Abraham's faith grew. God is able to do stuff that you wouldn't think was actually possible. Then, as again, as Eric shared with us last week, God makes a covenant with Abraham, a promise with him. He says, I'm going to give you a son, and through this son you're going to have a bazillion descendants, and everybody on earth is going to be blessed because of you. Abraham at this point is pretty old. Sarah's been barren all her life and has long past menopause. It's way back in the rearview mirror. But let's have a look at Romans chapter 4, verses 19 to 21, and see how Abraham grasped this. Got it, Dennis? Oh, I didn't give it to him. Uh Uh-oh, okay. I don't remember it verbatim, but basically Romans says that By faith, Abraham believed that God could do this thing that he said he could do. It's a crazy thing. He's way too old to be having kids. But he has faith that God can do it. Sort of. I think at this point, Abraham has faith that God can do it. But will he really? And when? Abraham and Sarah struggle with faith. They struggle with waiting. They struggle with hoping. They struggle with waiting. They struggle with faith. They struggle with believing. They struggle with doubting. Back and forth, up and down. And it's a long time. During this time, twice there are famines in the land. And Abraham and Sarah go one time to Egypt, where Abraham says, you've got to tell them that you're my sister, because if they know you're my wife, they'll kill me to get you, because you're still pretty. Sure enough, Pharaoh gets Sarah and takes him into uh, his group of wives, if you will. Um, But before he consummates the marriage, he and all his household get sick because he's got this married woman in his harem. He finds out that Sarah is actually married to Abraham and he goes to Abraham and says, how could you do such a bad thing to me? Why would you do such a thing? So he gives Sarah back to Abraham, loads him with good goods and sends him on his way. Another time, they do the same thing again. There's another fast. They go to King Abimelech. Abraham says, tell him I'm your sister. I don't want him to kill me to get you because you're still pretty. And the same thing happens. Abimelech takes Sarah. He and his whole family get sick. He finds out that Sarah is a married woman. He gives her back. He says, how could you do such a thing to me? You've got to pray and get my family well again. So they're struggling with faith. They believe, but they don't believe. Because frankly, if they really believed that God was going to give them a son, 
with many, many descendants, they wouldn't have been afraid that Abraham was going to get killed. They wouldn't have done all that stuff. But they're still waiting. So finally they have this idea. I'll tell you what, let's take Hagar, Sarah's maid, and have the son through her. So they do that. They wind up with the son Ishmael. Unfortunately, it turns out that Ishmael and Sarah, uh, Ishmael and Hagar are both kind of bullies. Mean-spirited people. But they're stuck with them. In the house. So they're beginning to wrestle with trying to believe God and wrestling with what happens when they don't believe God. And as they're wrestling, finally, 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 Isaac is there. Sarah gets pregnant. She has the son. They've got the child of promise. But they've still got Hagar and Ishmael, who are still bullies. And they're bullying Isaac, and they're bullying Sarah. So Sarah says, Abraham, you've got to get rid of them. Can't have them here. And Abraham has to give them all the food and water they can carry and turn them out in the wilderness. It's not fun. They suffer. So while they're on this faith journey to get to the faith that they wind up with, there's a lot of falling down and making mistakes and hurting people and climbing back up. But the promise is there. Isaac has arrived. Then God commands Abraham to give Isaac back as a burnt offering. And you can sort of imagine, and I'm, this isn't written anywhere in scripture, and I'm just trying to chew over this and try to imagine how Abraham is with this. Obviously, he doesn't want to. Who could? But I can sort of see how he might feel like he deserves it. Because what's a burnt offering for? And this is way before Moses, centuries before Moses and the laws in Leviticus and whatever, but burnt offerings were well known in the ancient Near East. Everybody did them. And the reason you do a burnt offering was to atone for sin, to get your gods to be okay with you and let you live and make your crops grow. The way you do it is you take a high quality, the best that you can animal out of your herd, you put your hands on that animal, and you make yourself one with the animal. You put your sins on the animal. So you're not offering the animal to your gods. You're offering yourself. You're dying through the animal. Does that make sense a little bit? Kind of bizarre, but it, you can understand how just offering a sheep isn't going to get you anywhere. You've got to somehow offer yourself. And then maybe, maybe, maybe your gods will be nice and let your crops grow and forgive your sins. So Abraham, when he hears from God that he is to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, he understands what a burnt offering is, what it's about. He has nothing more precious than Isaac that he could possibly offer, and he is one with his son. And through this whole journey, he has done grievous damage to Pharaoh and to King Abimelech. He's done damage to Sarah by making her be in this dangerous situation and these humiliating events. He's done damage to Hagar and Ishmael. So he has a lot of sin on his conscience and sadness on his heart, even though his son is here. 
So in a weird way, you can sort of understand how he might say, this is impossible, I wish I didn't have to do it, but I sort of deserve it. Maybe. The thing is, you have to participate. Okay? So let's look at Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. Did I give you that one? There we go. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Isaac doesn't have any kids. He's not even married yet. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Okay. So he says, okay, I bet the way this is going to work is that God's going to raise the dead. But he still has to kill Isaac. Isaac is still his son, his son. Now, I've never had a kid, but I couldn't sacrifice my cat. Okay, this is just impossible. Let's take a look at God and testing. God testing people. The Jews have all along traditionally held the story of Abraham and Isaac as being a story about how God owns Abraham. God owns all of us. He made us. We're his. He can do whatever he wants with us whenever he wants to do it, for whatever reason he wants to do it. And that's kind of how they hold this story. But I... I I think it's bigger than that. I think it's a lot bigger than that. First of all, God doesn't actually have a question in his mind, will Abraham, won't Abraham. I think when God talks about testing somebody, he's talking more about like a crucible or a smelter where you put metal ore and you heat it up until all the crap floats to the top and you can pour it off and you're left with the good stuff. I think that's more like what God is talking about when he's testing somebody. Remember back when we talked about the vine and the branches and how the branches have to be pruned, even the good branches that are bearing fruit, you have to prune them so they can bear more fruit. You get the dead stuff off of them. That's a test. The gardener testing the vine by cleaning it, pruning it, tying it up. Remember Job, who got stripped of everything as a test to see whether he really can love God for no reason? Not just because God's given him good stuff, but just because God is worth loving? On one level, that's a test with a question, will he, won't he? But in another level, it's a test of Job that smelts the junk off of him so that he really can love God for no reason as his heart wanted to. I think that's the kind of testing that God is up to here with Abraham. The point, though, with a test is you can't just have it happen to you. You have to participate. You have to agree with God. You have to struggle. When God pushes you up against the wall and said, okay, here's the yes-no question. This is a forced choice. You're going to have to choose God or not God. 
that's where you get purified. And I think what's going on is that God is purifying Abraham's trust, Abraham's willingness to believe that God is good. As soon as Abraham fully commits, he's ready to put the knife in, at that instant God immediately offers the sacrifice himself. The ram doesn't appear until Abraham picks up the knife. And I think we all know who that ram is. So, what did this test achieve? Well, first of all, God is overjoyed as he's restating his promise to Abraham and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this for you. You kind of can almost feel him in a celebratory dance. Finally, my friend Abraham is 100% there. He's got the faith he always wanted. His burden of sin and regret is lifted from him. And then Abraham gets a lot out of this too. First of all, he's freed from fear. Again, I'm not a parent, but my sister tells me that when her, her sons were small, she constantly struggled with something bad is going to happen to them. They're going to be on the way home from school. They're going to get some disease. They're just constant fear. Abraham is now freed from fear. The worst thing that could possibly happen is going to happen, and God was there. Abraham had everything to lose and nothing to lose. He's free from fear now. And Abraham now knows that his faith is good. He now knows that he can trust God to be good no matter what. He no longer has to doubt himself. Abraham now knows that God not only can do what he promised, but he will do what he promised. Even at the last possible second, God will come through. His promises are good. God is trustworthy. Abraham no longer has to doubt or wonder anything about that. You get a sense at this point that God could ask Abraham to give up his life for some reason and Abraham would be able to do it. Abraham would be able to offer himself if that's what needed to happen because now he completely trusts God's goodness. So, let's look at Isaac. Isaac has been through a lot too. We tend to picture Isaac like this. A little kid in a horrible situation, scared out of his mind. But that's not how the ancient Jews pictured him. Think about this carefully. Abraham is well over 100 years old. Granted, he's a strong old man. He can still go on a three-day hike. But all he can carry is a little pot with fire and a knife. Isaac carries up the mountain enough wood to burn an entire sheep to ashes. That's a lot of wood on his back. Isaac is in his 20s, 30s. He's a young man in his prime. Isaac is Abraham's son, his only son, in whom he is well pleased. Isaac was promised and waited for and longed for and came. 
Isaac was conceived in a miraculous way, in a pregnancy that could not have happened. He's a miracle. Isaac loves and trusts his father implicitly. Obviously, there is no possible way Abraham could have bound him and put him on an altar against his will. Abraham refers to Isaac as the lamb that God will provide. Isaac carries the wood on which he's going to be sacrificed. Isaac is willing to do his father's will, even at the cost of his own life. And in a way, Isaac is returned from the death. And eventually, he does have many, many descendants, and the whole world is blessed through him. Wait a second. Does this sound like anybody we know? A little? Yeah. I don't know why God wanted the Jews to carry this story for many, many, many years before Jesus came and fulfilled it, but he did. And they did. So let's look at our journey of faith. We have a journey of faith, just like Abraham had a journey of faith. Part of our journey is that Jesus says that anyone who loves their son or daughter more than they love him or anybody who refuses to take up their cross and follow him, is not worthy of him. Their faith is not there yet. All of us have times in our lives, eventually, sooner or later, where we have to choose who we love more, what we love more. Is it going to be that person, that thing, that situation, or is it going to be God? Sooner or later, we have to choose. Sooner or later, we have to face the loss of something dear to us and decide whether we're going to trust God's goodness through it or not. We could refuse and decide to trust our fear instead. Abraham shows us that we can trust God to keep his promises. So... When God ratified his promises at that altar, how do those promises apply to us? Galatians 3, 7 says that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. We are part of his many, many descendants that God promised him through Isaac. Those who receive the gift of the lamb that has been sacrificed for them are children of Abraham. And inherit the promise. Those who obey God's commands because they have faith in his goodness are children of Abraham and inherit the promise. God's promise to Abraham was that he would have many descendants. There's zillions of people who believe him now. Well, not zillions. There's only six billion on earth. Okay. There's lots of people who believe him. God promised that his people would have his protection through hard times. God promised that his people would inherit the land that God gave Abraham from the very beginning. God promised that his people would conquer their enemies. 
And above all, God promised that through his people, the whole world would be blessed. God's promise to his people is also his assignment to his people. Let's unpack that for a second. The descendants of Abraham, that's us, will be uncountably numerous. What's our assignment in that? We are to spread the faith in God's goodness to others so that our family can grow. God promised that we would be under his protection in hard times, even when we face death. Because how many of us face death? Every single one? We are to trust God's goodness no matter what. God promised that his people would inherit the promised land, which is now the new heaven and the new earth. So we are to live as citizens of God's kingdom in anticipation of that inheritance. God promised that we would conquer our enemies. Who is our enemy? Each other? Shake your heads. Yeah. We are to put on the full armor of God and resist the devil, our enemy, by repenting of our sins and loving our neighbors. All of them. God promised that we would bless the whole world. So our assignment, we are to spend our lives freely and generously loving everyone who lives in every way possible so that they may rejoice in God's goodness and share in our freedom. God has called us to lay down absolutely everything and everyone that we cherish on the altar of sacrifice. To allow God to free us from fear. And to grow towards trusting 100% in God's goodness completely. And yeah, it is hard. Because we don't yet trust 100% perfectly. But God is pruning us. God is tenderly guiding us and maturing our faith. Here's what makes it possible for us to grow to absolutely trust God's goodness completely. God himself has laid down his son, his only son, whom he loves, on the altar of sacrifice. Because he loves completely, holding nothing back. And because God did complete the sacrifice and endure death where Isaac could not, we can be freed from fear and our love can be purified. We can lay our hands on Jesus and die with him in our sinfulness and be raised with him into abundant life. Jesus has supplied the dying. Now we are a living sacrifice. Like Isaac, we are the living sacrifice. Like Abraham, we can now trust God to fulfill his promise. Lord God, Please give us the courage and the grace to believe you and trust you no matter what, even when you ask what is impossible.
because everything is possible in you. Amen.